Uh, good morning everybody, it's great to be here. Welcome to the Firehouse. Uh, my name is Tim Cavanaugh. I'm one of the uh, team of four pastors here. I thought I might introduce you to the other three, but I'm not sure if they're out here or not. I, I think we all they, we should have them all stand up, don't you, the other guys? Um, Rich is uh, in the back row there. Uh, Brad, could you come over and stand behind, beside Rich? It's a little under the light there. Uh, we've got Jeff coming here as well. Jeff, could you stand over there? And uh, of course, uh, I, I just thought you'd like to meet us. I'm not going to say anything more than that. Uh, I'll, uh, <laughs> actually, one of the guys uh, didn't say, I think my wife said, you know, great men think alike. And then one of the other guys said, well, actually, uh, great wives think alike. And then I think another one added, uh, or maybe we just haven't figured out Pad's not cool. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we did not plan that. I will say that. Uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, it's um, nice to be here this morning. Last night I got a call from my son-in-law, Luke. And uh, Luke uh, called and spoke to Julie and said, you know, uh, by the way, there are two services tomorrow. And uh, all I can say is, uh, if you ever hesitate calling me to remind me about something I'm already supposed to know, don't hesitate. Uh, I'm glad to be here, that's all I can say. And I'm grateful for Luke to give me a call last night. Um, it is fun to have two services. Uh, it's kind of challenging also. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are going to get the better of the two messages or if I'm going to work out the bugs on this one. I don't know. But uh, it is uh, great to be here on Palm Sunday. Uh, what do you say we pray and then we'll get started here today? Lord, thank you uh, for this opportunity to be together as, uh, as uh, people that are seeking you, want to know you and grow in our relationship with you, with one another. Uh, Father, we're grateful that you came to this earth to seek and to save the lost. You are alive, as our flyers said, and uh, as much alive this very moment as you, you were when we read about you 2,000 years ago on planet Earth. Uh, thank you that you did come to seek to save us, and that you have a great future in store for us. Lord, help us trust you and grow in our faith and our love for you and others. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I might just ask, just to kick things off, are you guys as fascinated uh, with royalty as my wife and I sometimes can be? I don't know. I don't know if you were ever riveted into the wedding last year. Was it last year? Prince William and Princess Kate. How many watched that? Boy, not too many. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely not preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I know that. Uh, I was pretty fascinated by it. I don't know. The glory and the splendor is kind of exciting. In fact, I, some of us here probably remember, of course, uh, when Prince William's mom and dad got married, did the same thing. It didn't seem that long ago. It was the same year Julie and I were married. Julie and I actually had a little, uh, a little, I guess, personal touch with royalty once. Uh, we were actually flying to uh, Ireland, and uh, we stopped in London. We thought we'd stay there for three days and just study or look around and all. And uh, while we were downtown, we thought we saw this play. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to go to a play, Shakespeare's Backyard. Uh, it was uh, Brigadoon, which is a cool story. And so we bought tickets for that night's play. And our son Chris was with us. He was six weeks old. And so that day we did some sightseeing. We went back to the theater that night. We went into the theater. 
climbed way up into the uh, atmosphere up there, and all I can remember was how steep everything was. I mean, it was it was like you're looking down at the play like this. I think if somebody nudged Julie's arm from behind, Chris would be dead on the stage below. I mean, he just has flopped down there. And uh, we've got a little slant here going to Firehouse, but that was really something else there. And uh, we were sitting there about five minutes before the play started. Uh, the usher came up. I saw him out of the corner of my eye. And it's kind of like when the police drives by. You know it's for you, you know. Uh, but I looked at him, and sure enough, he said, you know, you guys must not know the rules, but you can't have an infant at the, at the play. And we were really disappointed. We probably saw that we were disappointed. And so he said, but... Uh, Look, just follow me. I'll try to. I'm, I think I got you guys are from out of the country. You're young, young family. Let me just try to help you out here. Just follow me. So we started following down little corridors and up steps and down steps and kind of in and out and uh, over and under. And finally, we stood before this door. And he said, "I'm going to let you sit in here tonight." And we looked at him. He said, "This is the Queen's Loge." And we opened up the door and we just stepped into the theater uh, in this loge, which is right above the stage. We were about 10 yards. It was the Queen's Loge. And I can't tell you how it made me feel, but uh, I have a, a picture here that might describe how Julie and I felt sitting in the Queen's Loge that night as we watched the play Brigadoon. And, and let's see if I can advance it. I think I did it too fast. There we go. That's how we felt. Uh, we felt like Napoleon in 1804 as he was crowning himself uh, the king of the French Empire. All the grandeur and glory and so forth. And by the way, do you see that guy just to the right of Napoleon? I think this would be a good cartoon uh, thing where we have people come up with little clips below it. I was looking at that guy next to me, and it looks like he's uh, you know, going to pat Napoleon on the back just to the right. I think what he's actually doing, though, he's not whispering in his ear or anything. He's just, I think he's kind of rubbing up against Napoleon's elbow so he can tell his buddies that he's rubbed elbows with Napoleon. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. But uh, in any case, what a contrast, though, between any earthly coronation along this line or as we saw with uh, Prince William and, and Princess Kate. What a, what a contrast, the coronation of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people may think, wait, I don't even remember Jesus being coronated. But you know, that's exactly what happened to Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday. That was his coronation as the king, as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the chosen one. Starting to sound like the Matrix here, aren't I? You know, Neil, he's the, he's the one. But Jesus was the one. And he was the chosen one. Uh, the one that was to come to save the world from our sins. And um, what a contrast, because Jesus never had all this glory when he was coronated. He actually rode into town, into Jerusalem, the day he chose to announce to the world that he was the king of the universe. He rode in on the, the little, not the donkey, of course not the horse or the steed, uh, not even a mule, not even a donkey. He came in on the donkey's foal, the little colt of the donkey. That's what Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. You know, uh, it's just kind of an amazing thing. What a contrast. Jesus said that he actually uh, came to seek and to save the lost. He said that he came not to be served, but to serve. Uh, and that's not the mindset you would see in a Napoleon by any means. But Jesus does want to seek to save us. 
and to serve us. And in this verse here, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus came into Jerusalem that day on the foal of the donkey, that, this verse, uh, these guys know their Bibles, those Jews. They knew that Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy. And probably some of the rabbis probably were even upset with him that he had the audacity to even link himself with this verse out of the Old Testament. That he would link himself as that one, the king, the Messiah, that they've been waiting for for centuries to come to seek and to save us from our sins. And so Jesus came in, though, and announced himself on that Palm Sunday, the king of the universe. And what a story it is. It really is an amazing story. And where better to start a story than at its beginning? And really the beginning of this story, Palm Sunday, begins in the beginning, in Genesis. We know from Genesis, and we can see it here in the early uh, chapters of Genesis, how God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And he made him female, and he made him male. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and uh, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And that was the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve. We often talk about the Great Commission. This is sometimes called the cultural mandate. It's in effect still today. We still have this mandate before us as descendants of Adam and Eve to control and subdue and husband and take care of the world around us. And God created us so in His image. We can love because God is love. You know, we can create because God's a creator. We will live forever because God's eternal. Even once our bodies die, our souls will live forever. And it says in the Bible that God puts that eternity in the hearts of all people. Everybody, every culture has a religion, you know, of some sort. There's a sense of need for God, of bridging the gap between us and our God. And so God created us. At this point, there was no gap. Adam and Eve lived in fellowship with God. They knew God. They loved God. They experienced sinlessness as the first people on planet Earth. But time passed, and not much time, and there was a sin, there was a, a, a fall. God gave him a choice, embodied in a tree. He said, look, that one tree, you can't eat of it. Any other tree, you can. But I, I want you to have a choice to follow me or not. And that tree gives you that choice. I'm not sure how long it took before this happened. Uh, I've heard people speculate on it. Uh, my guess is that within six days, everything in the heavens and earth was created because the Bible says so. That includes angels, Satan, Lucifer, who was a fallen angel, mankind, probably within those six days. I know different people have different views on that. I tend to take it more literal. And so there in those six days, uh, everything in the heavens and the earth was created. And Adam was created. And then he was given a job of naming the animals. I don't know how long it takes to name animals. There's prototypes. There's only one horse and, uh, before there was mules and donkeys and so forth. But uh, he named them all. Maybe a few days, a few weeks, I don't know. But he needed a helper suitable for himself. God created Eve. And they were perfect human specimens. My guess is they began to have sexual relations pretty quickly, probably day one, and they probably conceived very fast. 
week, two weeks, three weeks? I don't know, but my guess is from the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, to man's fall was probably just a matter of days. Probably just a matter of days before Adam and Eve uh, were led into sin. And God responded to the, to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, it shall bruise your head. The seed will bruise your head. The seed of the woman will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. That's in reference to the one, the Messiah, the Christ that would be coming one day to destroy, to crush the serpent's head, though he himself would be wounded on the heel, not a mortal wound, a temporary wound. This is referring to Christ on the cross. And it's really uh, one of the earliest references of Jesus. And then throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, we'll see other references uh, uh, of the one that would come to free us from this sin that Adam and Eve introduced into the world. You know, sometimes I thought, hey, it's just not fair, you know. Uh, I'm kind of uh, bearing the wrapper a choice they made as one of their descendants. But they are, as the Bible would call it, a federal head. It's like my uh, ancestors, your ancestors, when they immigrated. My great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather immigrated from Ireland on the heels of a potato famine. But that decision defined who I was, where I was born, where I would live. I am actually living out a life because of a decision an ancestor made many years ago as my federal head of my family and my kids in turn. And in the same way, when Adam and Eve chose to sin as our federal heads before they had children, they could not then pass on to their kids what they no longer possessed, which was perfection, sinlessness, a relationship with God that they enjoyed. And so God did say, though, to them that this seed would be coming. And I'm sure with every birth of every child, Adam and Eve looked at one another and thought, could this be the one? Could this be the seed? Maybe it's Cain, but they never sensed it was. Maybe it's Abel. They apparently never sensed it was Abel because his name means vanity. But when Seth was born, they seemed to sense that maybe Seth was the seed because they named him the chosen one. And so Seth, though, wasn't the seed. He was the carrier of the seed. It would be through Seth's line that the one would come, the chosen one would come. Several thousand years later, we're not sure how many people have their views. Abram was born in the land of Ur. And now God gets more pointed now with Abram, and he said, Look, Abram, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Why? Because Abram now is going to be the carrier of the seed. Abram, a descendant of Seth, will continue being a carrier of the seed. That seed through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. What a promise to Abram. And again, what a prophecy of this coming seed, the chosen one. And again, throughout the Old Testament, uh, there were other references. Pretty much every book of the Old Testament, which is a story of the creation of a nation of Israel, through whom the seed would come. For example, just Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His chosen one. 
and against his anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, the one who's to come. Um, in Isaiah, and as time passed on, the prophecies became more specific. For to us a child will be born, the chosen one, the seed. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now we're seeing through prophecy as it gets more specific, the seed is God himself. The seed is the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. This is the seed that has been foretold from the very beginning of time and is to come to this earth. And there was a time and how God decided it, I don't know, but the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. The scripture does not say, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and to seeds, meaning many, like the Jewish people, but to your seed, meaning one person, that is Christ. So in this letter to the Galatians, Paul is telling the Galatians that the seed is Christ. And the scripture uh, is pointing to Jesus as that seed. And when the time had fully come, God sent the seed, born of a woman. Just like Genesis said, it would be a seed from the woman that would crush the serpent's head. Though that serpent might bruise the Christ heel, it wouldn't be a mortal bruise. The Christ would rise again from his wound. And at that point, Jesus was born in Bethlehem when the fullness of the time came. But there was some danger. Herod wanted to destroy, as prophesied, he knew that the seed was going to be coming. A king of the Jews was coming. And he uh, even went in and destroyed uh, in Bethlehem all the babies under two years of age trying to destroy the seed, trying to crush the seed before it could have its prophesied effect. And so, in a dream, God directed Joseph and Mary to go to Egypt. And they remained in Egypt for a period of time until the coast was clear, at which point they went back to their home in Nazareth, which is where Jesus spent 30 obscure years Obscure years working as a carpenter, living with his family there in Nazareth. But in the last three years of his life, those were his public years. Jesus decided to set up headquarters on the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee in a town called Capernaum. And that's where he lived and settled and kind of worked from for those last three years of his life. And during those three years, you know, Jesus would often try to uh, downplay who he was. He wouldn't want people to really know that he was the seed, the Christ. One time he did ask Peter, who do you say I am? Peter said, you're the seed. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said to Peter, you know, Peter, blessed are you because, you know, flesh and blood does not reveal that to people. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. But, you know, really though, it wasn't, it wasn't broadly fork, uh, broadcasted at all, was it? Jesus really kind of kept it undercover as he functioned there from Capernaum. And then every year, as was his custom throughout his life, even at 12 years of age, his mom and dad followed the custom as the Jews would go to Jerusalem every year for the, celebrating the Day of Atonement and the Passover. You know, when Jesus was in there for this Palm Sunday, they estimate there was 2 million visitors there in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people with a lot of lambs to be sacrificed. As Jesus hung on the cross coming up here soon, this next Friday, he could maybe even hear those lambs bleeding in the background. Lambs that were just symbolic of the Messiah, the seed that was going to be wounded on his heel. 
Uh, Jesus probably even heard those lambs. There's, there's thousands of them that were being sacrificed as the families brought their sacrifices instructed in Jewish law. And as a child, he was left in the temple. Remember that story? That was when the family journeyed to Jerusalem for this great event. And now, the last week of his life, he's making that same journey. He left Jerusalem, or left Capernaum, his home, and uh, he traveled to the lower red dot, Jerusalem. And he traveled down the Jordan River. And as he traveled down that river, you can see a little path along the side of the river there, probably a path that Jesus would have taken on his way to Jericho. Uh, And then on the way he talked about a lot of different things. Things we've covered in our Mark series. Uh, Brad and Jeff and Rich as we've gone through now chapters 1 through 10 of Mark. We'll resume on that here shortly. But he talked about divorce and children, eternal life and materialism and qualities and uh, predicted his sufferings and uh, you know the greatness issue where the disciples were arguing who's going to be the greatest among us and Rich pointed that out last week it's kind of like in your small group getting together to decide who's the greatest among you guys you know? it was a crazy thing to think of but that's what they were doing the blind were healed two blind people were healed in Jericho this town right here toward the base of the Jordan River as it goes into the Dead Sea and at that point the road turns west and goes up the hill to Jerusalem and that's the road to Jerusalem that Jesus would have taken on his journeys back to Jerusalem uh, for this last week of his life and we know that as he approached Jerusalem and that's a blurry picture of Jerusalem but as he approached it there's the Mount of Olives and there is uh, the Dead Sea 10 miles that way and then uh, we've got Bethphage and you read about Bethphage in our story here briefly you read also about Bethany Bethany is where Mary lived and her brother Lazarus and sister Martha they lived in Bethany and it's where Jesus stayed while he was there uh, the last week of his life. He would go back to Bethany in the evenings. It was about a half mile, mile to the city from Bethany. Mount of Olives is just like a hill. Bethany is like the side of the Mount of Olives, but it had its own name. And toward the bottom of the base of the Mount of Olives is Bethany. And um, there's the Dead Sea from the top of Mount of Olives. You can see 10 miles. Just a little bit of, uh, of a glimmer of the Dead Sea, which is the journey Jesus had taken when he arrived in Jerusalem. And, um, you know, we could uh, go on as Jesus then began to enter in the city. We know that he entered in by the east gate. And in Mark chapter 11... I'll read the passage here, uh, which describes, at least in one of the four gospel accounts, the triumphant entry where Jesus, again, was coronated the king of the universe. And as they approached Jerusalem, chapter 11, verse 1 of Mark, and came to Bethphage, and if we could go back a slide, we'll show you there, uh, maybe in one more slide. And uh, there we go. They came to uh, Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And they went and found a colt outside in the street, just as the Lord said tied at a doorway and as they untied it some people standing there asked 
What are you doing untying that colt? They answered Jesus, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread branches, they had to cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means save now, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the chosen one. He's coming in on the foal of the donkey like Zechariah 9.9 said. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went straight to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve and spent the night there with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And that's just a very simple account of Palm Sunday. Other passages in the other gospel give other little added uh, additions to this account. But that was the day that the world knew that Jesus was the king. Now there was one problem with this though. And that is, uh, the people in Israel, as, and Jesus had entered in, by the way, on that fold through that eastern gate. And uh, he'll enter in that gate again. The Bible prophesizes when he returns to earth. But he entered into that gate just as... Uh, uh, with people, throngs of people, probably tens, hundreds of thousands of people trying to get a glimpse of this Jesus. And they were fascinated. Many of them knew, saw Lazarus. And the authorities were actually at this time on Palm Sunday trying to kill Lazarus and Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus to do away with the evidence that he'd been raised from the dead just maybe months earlier. And so in this passage we see these people crying out to their king. The only problem is their concept of what they were crying out for or to was different than the reality. They seemed to be crying out for a savior from Roman oppression, a king to really, you know, uh, protect them from all foreign powers and make them the world force and help them be their own nation again and oust all the Roman soldiers. That's what they were really crying when they said, save now. But when Jesus was, in his mind, hearing that he knew within a few days, those same people would be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus, his kingship was different. He really saw his kingdom in the hearts of those who would trust him as their savior. The true king, in the truest sense, saving us from the greatest damnation, eternal separation from God, apart from his saving, atoning sacrifice on the cross, which paid for, his death paid for the sin that, uh, that the death that my sin demands. His death paid that death. So that we now have a choice. Either dying for our sin ourselves, or by accepting in faith the chosen one's death as payment for our sin. And accepting the seed as the one who was to crush the work of Satan. To free us from the bondage of Satan. And to allow us to have eternal life as Adam and Eve enjoyed for a few days. Before they themselves fell into sin. And passed that sin on to us and all their posterity. Jesus wants to be our king. And that's really the question when we face Palm Sunday is, what's your concept of the king? What's your concept of the seed? Are you crying out in your heart right now, save now, save now, but from what? 
Save now, save now, but from what? What is this king to you? Is he uh, the king that you really is uh, maybe a ticket to providing the things you want in life, making sure you'll have the comfort you want in life, the things you need in life? Or is he a king that demands your loyalty, your obedience, your devotion, your gratitude for saving you on that cross? This final little uh, diagram is a diagram from an organization called Campus Crusade. But I kind of like it because it shows two different kinds of lives. You know, one kind of life is uh, there on the left. And in that circle, you can see that there's a throne, all right. But the S stands for yourself. You are on your throne of your life. And then outside that circle, there's the cross. And he's kind of outside, maybe varying distances, but outside that circle. And then there's little black dots around that circle on the left. And those are our interests, our priorities, the things that we value in life. And uh, the self is really, though, defining what those interests are, what those activities are, those priorities are. And the other life is a Christ-centered life where we've accepted the seed as our Savior and placed the seed on the throne of our life. And our self is subservient to that. And our interests are defined by the King, the King of glory, Christ, who is now on the throne of our life. At some point, each of us, in the course of our lives, have to choose which life we want. And it's a choice that everybody must make and keep making in the course of our lives. There was something that was kind of troubling Julie last night, Julie and myself, and we were kind of up a little bit, and I was thinking about it. You know, that's, that's an example where Jesus just wasn't king of our life because we were troubled and kind of concerned about some things, assuming responsibility we had no control over. And so we were just kind of troubled. And we thought about it, we talked about it later, you know, during those moments, our, we were living a life on the, le- on the left where ourselves were kind of, kind of in charge of our lives and we were troubled because of it. When in fact, though, by just simply turning to Christ in prayer, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will guard and protect your hearts. You know, have you ever thought about that when you're not at peace? It's because you're living the wrong life. You're not trusting in God as your king. But that's what Palm Sunday is all about. Jesus is your king. He announced it. He's the Hosanna. He's the seed. He's our king. And when we accept Him, embrace Him as Christians, that's the, the first step of His kingship, is accepting Him as our Savior. And praying Him, Lord, I believe You died on that cross for my sins, and apart from Your death, I will be eternally damned in hell. I accept Your free gift of eternal life. That's showing His kingship over our life and putting Him on the throne of our life. But even after that, there's so many choices. We were here at Teen Group the other day, and one of the teens said, you know, he's tempted not to do work hard at school because it's not popular among the kids. And you know, it says, if you love the world, you will hate God. If you love the world, the world will hate you. And so when he tries or tries to excel, his world, his classmates hate him for it. But that's not what God wants. To put God in the throne of his life, he'll need to work hard and he may be hated for it. And there's any number of ways the world will hate us. But if Christ is the center, if the world doesn't hate you, you have to stop and ask, which life are you living? And which life do you want to live? 
Sometimes I even have to just ask Lord, you know, uh, I don't ask what would Tim Tebow do. I, I know that's what some people do. We may have to ask what is what will Peyton Manning do now. I don't know, but uh, I like that. What would Jesus do? That's a great question. And in a way, it just what it does. That question does is put, it puts Jesus on our throne. And I have to pray often, Lord, help me be willing. Help me to be willing to do what you're going to show me you want me to do. Just give me a willingness to do your will. So that I might even know what it is. The way you dress, the way we spend money, the way we use our time. These were all things we talked about in our team group the other day. And how we as Christians, you really have to make so many different choices to put Jesus as our king on the throne of our life. Now, in this room today, there's some of you that have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, perhaps. And I would like to give you that opportunity, even now, to pray. As I prayed 40 years ago, it doesn't seem possible, as a freshman at Iowa State University, what a great decision that was. I'm so grateful we made it 40 years ago. I've never regretted it. But maybe some of you have yet to make that choice of putting Jesus on the right there as the king of your life to give you salvation, eternal salvation. Maybe there's areas in our lives as Christians, though, we need to put Jesus back in the throne of our life. Being willing to do His will. And maybe God would, in this time of prayer, would lead you to renew your commitment to Jesus as your King. That's really, to me, what Palm Sunday is all about. Reminding us that we have a King. And He is a King on His terms, not our terms. And we have a choice to keep Him in throne, put him in, at, you know, place Him in throne in our life and keep Him there throughout the course of these days. And you know, one day, when we hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant, we'll be so glad we did and made those choices each and every time we made those choices. What do you say we close in prayer? And for those of you that have never accepted Christ, I might offer this as a, a, a prayer to direct you into accepting Him as your personal Savior. And then the rest of us who have accepted Christ, again, just maybe evaluate ways that we could um, express His kingship over our lives in greater ways. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank You for this day. and Palm Sunday, the day that uh, You were crowned the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Seed. Lord, we're so grateful that you left heaven to come to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. And for those of us who have not yet accepted you as your Savior, I'll lead in prayer. Lord Jesus, I do need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. And Lord, for all of us here, we renew our desire, our commitment to follow you as, as truly our Savior, but also as our King. Uh, we cry out to you, Lord, uh, in gratitude as the King of our lives and ask you enable us and give us the grace to follow you as your, your loyal subjects. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. It's great to have you today. So, all right. All right.